0: Section 21. Of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joanne Turner. Theodore Roosevelt, December 3, 1906, Part 2. In dealing with both labor and capital, with the questions affecting both corporations and trades unions, there is one matter more important to remember than aught else, and that is the infinite harm done by preachers of mere discontent. These are the men who seek to excite a violent class hatred against all men of wealth. They seek to turn wise and proper movements for the better control of corporations, and for doing away with the abuses connected with wealth, into a campaign of hysterical excitement and falsehood, in which the aim is to inflame to madness the brutal passions of mankind. The sinister demagogues and foolish visionaries who are always eager to undertake such a campaign of destruction sometimes seek to associate themselves with those working for a genuine reform in governmental and social methods and sometimes masquerade as such reformers in reality they are the worst enemies of the cause they profess to advocate just as the purveyors of sensational slander in newspaper or magazine are the worst enemies of all men who are engaged in an honest effort to better what is bad in our social and governmental conditions, to preach hatred of the rich man as such, to carry on a campaign of slander and invective against him, to seek to mislead and inflame to madness honest men whose lives are hard and who have not the kind of mental training which will permit them to appreciate the danger in the doctrines preached. All this is to commit a crime against the body politic, and to be false to every worthy principle and tradition of American national life. Moreover, while such preaching and such agitation may give a livelihood and a certain notoriety to some of those who take part in it and may result in the temporary political success of others, in the long run every such movement will either fail or else will provoke a violent reaction which will, itself, result not merely in undoing the mischief wrought by the demagogue and the agitator, but also in undoing the good that the honest reformer, the true upholder of popular rights, has painfully and laboriously achieved. Corruption is never so rife as in communities where the demagogue and the agitator bear full sway because in such communities all moral bands become loosened, and hysteria and sensationalism replace the spirit of sound judgment and fair dealing as between man and man. In sheer revolt against the squalid anarchy thus produced, men are sure in the end to turn toward any leader who can restore order, and then their relief at being free from the intolerable burdens of class hatred, violence, and demagogy is such that they cannot for some time be aroused to indignation against misdeeds by men of wealth, so that they permit a new growth of the very abuses which were in part responsible for the original outbreak. The one hope for success for our people lies in a resolute and fearless but sane and cool-headed advance along the path marked out last year by this very congress there must be a stern refusal to be misled into following either that base creature who appeals and panders to the lowest instincts and passions in order to arouse one set of americans against their fellows or that other creature equally base but no baser who in a spirit of greed or to accumulate or add to an already huge fortune seeks to exploit his fellow americans with callous disregard to their welfare of soul and body the man who debauches others in order to obtain a high office stands on an evil equality of corruption with the man who debauches others for financial profit and when hatred is sown the crop which springs up can only be evil the plain people who think the mechanics farmers merchants workers with head or hand the men to whom american traditions are dear who love their country and try to act decently by their neighbors owe it to themselves to remember that the most damaging blow that can be given popular government is to elect an unworthy and sinister agitator on a platform of violence and hypocrisy whenever such an issue is raised in this country nothing can be gained by flinching from it for in such case democracy is itself on trial popular self-government under republican forms is itself on trial The triumph of the mob is just as evil a thing as the triumph of the plutocracy, and to have escaped one danger avails nothing whatever if we succumb to the other. In the end, the honest man, whether rich or poor, who earns his own living and tries to deal justly by his fellows, has as much to fear from the insincere and unworthy demagogue promising much and performing nothing, or else performing nothing but evil, who would set on the mob to plunder the rich, as from the crafty corruptionist, who for his own ends would permit the common people to be exploited by the very wealthy. If we ever let this government fall into the hands of men of either of these two classes, we shall show ourselves false to America's past. Moreover, the demagogue and the corruptionist often work hand in hand. There are at this moment wealthy reactionaries of such obtuse morality that they regard the public servant who prosecutes them when they violate the law or who seeks to make them bear their proper share of the public burdens as being even more objectionable than the violent agitator who hounds on the mob to plunder the rich. There is nothing to choose between such a reactionary and such an agitator. Fundamentally, they are alike in their selfish disregard of the rights of others, and it is natural that they should join in opposition to any movement of which the aim is fearlessly to do exact and even justice to all. I call your attention to the need of passing the bill limiting the number of hours of employment of railroad employees. The measure is a very moderate one, and I can conceive of no serious objection to it. Indeed, so far as it is in our power, it should be our aim steadily to reduce the number of hours of labor, with, as a goal, the general introduction of an eight-hour day. There are industries in which it is not possible that the hours of labor should be reduced, just as there are communities not far enough advanced for such a movement to be for their good, or if in the tropics so situated that there is no analogy between their needs and ours in this matter. On the Isthmus of Panama, for instance, the conditions are in every way so different from what they are here that an eight-hour day would be absurd, just as it is absurd, so far as the isthmus is concerned, where white labor cannot be employed, to bother as to whether the necessary work is done by alien black men or by alien yellow men. But the wage workers of the United States are of so high a grade that alike from the merely industrial standpoint and from the civic standpoint It should be our object to do what we can in the direction of securing the general observance of an eight hour day. Until recently, the eight hour law on our federal statute books has been very scantily observed. Now, however, largely through the instrumentality of the Bureau of Labor, it is being rigidly enforced and I shall speedily be able to say whether or not there is need of further legislation in reference thereto, for our purpose is to see it obeyed in spirit no less than in letter. Half-holidays during summer should be established for government employees. It is as desirable for wage workers who toil with their hands as for salaried officials whose labor is mental, that there should be a reasonable amount of holiday. The Congress at its last session wisely provided for a truant court for the District of Columbia, a marked step in advance on the path of properly caring for the children. Let me again urge that the Congress provide for a thorough investigation of the conditions of child labor and of the labor of women in the United States. More and more our people are growing to recognize the fact that the questions which are not merely of industrial but of social importance outweigh all others, and these two questions most emphatically come in the category of those which affect in the most far-reaching way the home life of the nation. The horrors incident to the employment of young children in factories or at work anywhere are a blot on our civilization. It is true that each state must ultimately settle the question in its own way, but a thorough official investigation of the matter with the results published broadcast would greatly help toward arousing the public conscience and securing unity of state action in the matter. There is, however, one law on the subject which should be enacted immediately because there is no need for an investigation in reference thereto, and the failure to enact it is discreditable to the national government. A drastic and thoroughgoing child labor law should be enacted for the District of Columbia and the territories. Among the excellent laws which the Congress passed at the last session was an employer's liability law, It was a marked step in advance to get the recognition of employers' liability on the statute books, but the law did not go far enough. In spite of all precautions exercised by employers, there are unavoidable accidents and even deaths involved in nearly every line of business connected with the mechanic arts. This inevitable sacrifice of life may be reduced to a minimum but it cannot be completely eliminated. It is a great social injustice to compel the employee, or rather the family, of the killed or disabled victim to bear the entire burden of such an inevitable sacrifice. In other words, society shirks its duty by laying the whole cost on the victim whereas the injury comes from what may be called the legitimate risks of the trade. Compensation for accidents or deaths due in any line of industry to the actual conditions under which that industry is carried on should be paid by that portion of the community for the benefit of which the industry is carried on, that is, by those who profit by the industry. If the entire trade risk is placed upon the employer, he will promptly and properly add it to the legitimate cost of production and assess it proportionately upon the consumers of his commodity. It is therefore clear to my mind that the law should place this entire quote, risk of a trade, unquote, upon the employer. Neither the federal law, nor as far as I am informed, The state laws dealing with the question of employers' liability are sufficiently thoroughgoing. The federal law should, of course, include employees in navy yards, arsenals, and the like. The commission appointed by the President, October 16, 1902, at the request of both the anthracite coal operators and miners, to inquire into, consider, and pass upon the questions in controversy in connection with the strike in the anthracite regions of Pennsylvania and the causes out of which the controversy arose, in their report, findings, and award, expressed the belief, that the state and federal governments should provide the machinery for what may be called the compulsory investigation of controversies between employers and employees when they arise, unquote. This expression of belief is deserving of the favorable consideration of the Congress and the enactment of its provisions into law. A bill has already been introduced to this end. Records show that during the 20 years from January 1, 1881 to December 31, 1900, there were strikes affecting 117,509 establishments and 6,105,694 employees were thrown out of employment. During the same period, there were 1,005 lockouts, involving nearly 10,000 establishments, throwing over 1 million people out of employment. These strikes and lockouts involved an estimated loss to employees of $307 million and to employers of one hundred and forty three million dollars a total of four hundred and fifty million dollars the public suffered directly and indirectly probably as great additional loss but the money loss great as it was did not measure the anguish and suffering endured by the wives and children of employees whose pay stopped when their work stopped or the disastrous effect of the strike or lockout upon the business of employers, or the increase in the cost of products, and the inconvenience and loss to the public. Many of these strikes and lockouts would not have occurred had the parties to the dispute been required to appear before an unprejudiced body representing the nation, and, face to face, state the reasons for their contention. In most instances, the dispute would doubtless be found to be due to a misunderstanding by each of the other's rights, aggravated by an unwillingness of either party to accept as true the statements of the other as to the justice or injustice of the matters in dispute. The exercise of a judicial spirit by a disinterested body representing the federal government such as would be provided by a commission on conciliation and arbitration, would tend to create an atmosphere of friendliness and conciliation between contending parties, and the giving each side an equal opportunity to present fully its case in the presence of the other would prevent many disputes from developing into serious strikes or lockouts, and in other cases would enable the commission to persuade the opposing parties to come to terms. In this age of great corporate and labor combinations, neither employers nor employees should be left completely at the mercy of the stronger party to a dispute, regardless of the righteousness of their respective claims. The proposed measure would be in the line of securing recognition of the fact that, in many strikes, the public has itself an interest which cannot wisely be disregarded, an interest not merely of general convenience, for the question of a just and proper public policy must also be considered. In all legislation of this kind, it is well to advance cautiously, testing each step by the actual results. The step proposed can surely be safely taken, for the decisions of the Commission would not bind the parties in legal fashion, and yet would give a chance for public opinion to crystallize, and thus to exert its full force for the right. It is not wise that the nation should alienate its remaining coal lands. I have temporarily withdrawn from settlement all the lands which the geological survey has indicated as containing, or in all probability containing, coal. The question, however, can be properly settled only by legislation, which in my judgment should provide for the withdrawal of these lands from sale or from entry, save in certain especial circumstances. The ownership would then remain in the United States, which should not, however, attempt to work them, but permit them to be worked by private individuals under a royalty system, the government keeping such control as to permit it to see that no excessive price was charged consumers. It would, of course, be as necessary to supervise the rates charged by the common carriers to transport the product, as the rates charged by those who mine it, and the supervision must extend to the conduct of the common carriers, so that they shall in no way favor one competitor at the expense of another. The withdrawal of these coal lands would constitute a policy analogous to that which has been followed in withdrawing the forest lands from ordinary settlement. The coal, like the forests, should be treated as the property of the public, and its disposal should be under conditions which would inure to the benefit of the public as a whole. The present Congress has taken long strides in the direction of securing proper supervision and control by the national government over corporations engaged in interstate business, and the enormous majority of corporations of any size are engaged in interstate business. The passage of the Railway Rate Bill, and only to a less degree the passage of the Pure Food Bill, and the provision for increasing and rendering more effective national control over the beef packing industry, mark an important advance in the proper direction. In the short session, it will perhaps be difficult to do much further along this line, and it may be best to wait until the laws have been in operation for a number of months before endeavoring to increase their scope, because only operation will show with exactness their merits and their shortcomings, and thus give opportunity to define what further remedial legislation is needed. Yet in my judgment it will in the end be advisable in connection with the packing house inspection law, to provide for putting a date on the label and for charging the cost of inspection to the packers. All these laws have already justified their enactment. The Interstate Commerce Law, for instance, has rather amusingly falsified the predictions both of those who asserted that it would ruin the railroads and of those who asserted that it did not go far enough and would accomplish nothing. During the last five months, the railroads have shown increased earnings, and some of them unusual dividends, while during the same period the mere taking effect of the law has produced an unprecedented, a hitherto unheard of, number of voluntary reductions in freights and fares by the railroads. Since the founding of the Commission, there has never been a time of equal length in which anything like so many reduced tariffs have been put into effect. On August 27th, for instance, two days before the new law went into effect, the Commission received notices of over 5,000 separate tariffs, which represented reductions from previous rates. It must not be supposed, however, that with the passage of these laws, it will be possible to stop progress along the line of increasing the power of the national government over the use of capital interstate commerce. For example, there will ultimately be need of enlarging the powers of the Interstate Commerce Commission along several different lines so as to give it a larger and more efficient control over the railroads. It cannot too often be repeated that experience has conclusively shown the impossibility of securing by the actions of nearly half a hundred different state legislatures anything but ineffective chaos in the way of dealing with the great corporations which do not operate exclusively within the limits of any one state in some method whether by a national license law or in other fashion we must exercise and that at an early date a far more complete control than at present over these great corporations a control that will, among other things, prevent the evils of excessive overcapitalization, and that will compel the disclosure by each big corporation of its stockholders and of its properties and business, whether owned directly or through subsidiary or affiliated corporations. This will tend to put a stop to the securing of inordinate profits by favored individuals at the expense whether of the general public, the stockholders, or the wage workers. Our effort should be not so much to prevent consolidation as such, but so to supervise and control it, as to see that it results in no harm to the people. The reactionary or ultra-conservative apologists for the misuse of wealth assail the effort to secure such control as a step toward socialism. As a matter of fact, it is these reactionaries and ultraconservatives who are themselves most potent in increasing socialistic feeling. One of the most efficient methods of averting the consequences of a dangerous agitation, which is 80% wrong, is to remedy the 20% of evil as to which the agitation is well-rounded. The best way to avert the very undesirable move for the government ownership of railways is to secure by the government on behalf of the people as a whole such adequate control and regulation of the great interstate common carriers as will do away with the evils which give rise to the agitation against them. So the proper antidote to the dangerous and wicked agitation against the men of wealth, as such, is to secure by proper legislation and executive action the abolition of the grave abuses which actually do obtain, in connection with the business use of wealth under our present system, or rather no system, of failure to exercise any adequate control at all. Some persons speak as if the exercise of such governmental control would do away with the freedom of individual initiative and dwarf individual effort. This is not a fact. It would be a veritable calamity to fail to put a premium upon individual initiative, individual capacity, and effort, upon the energy, character, and foresight which it is so important to encourage in the individual. But as a matter of fact, the deadening and degrading effect of pure socialism, and especially of its extreme form, communism, and the destruction of individual character which they would bring about, are in part achieved by the wholly unregulated competition which results in a single individual or corporation rising at the expense of all others, until his or its rise effectually checks all competition and reduces former competitors to a position of utter inferiority and subordination. In enacting and enforcing such legislation as this Congress already has to its credit, we are working on a coherent plan, with the steady endeavor to secure the needed reform by the joint action of the moderate men, the plain men who do not wish anything hysterical or dangerous, but who do intend to deal in resolute, common-sense fashion with the real and great evils of the present system. The reactionaries and the violent extremists show symptoms of joining hands against us. Both assert, for instance, that if logical, we should go to government ownership of railroads and the like. The reactionaries, because on such an issue, they think the people would stand with them, while the extremists care rather to preach discontent and agitation than to achieve solid results. As a matter of fact, our position is as remote from that of the Bourbon reactionary as from that of the impracticable or sinister visionary. We hold that the government should not conduct the business of the nation, but that it should exercise such supervision as will ensure its being conducted in the interest of the nation. Our aim is, so far as may be, to secure for all decent, hard-working men equality of opportunity and equality of burden. The actual working of our laws has shown that the effort to prohibit all combination, good or bad, is noxious, where it is not ineffective. Combination of capital, like combination of labor, is a necessary element of our present industrial system. It is not possible completely to prevent it, and if it were possible, such complete prevention would do damage to the body politic What we need is not vainly to try to prevent all combination, but to secure such rigorous and adequate control and supervision of the combinations as to prevent their injuring the public, or existing in such form as inevitably to threaten injury. For the mere fact that a combination has secured practically complete control of a necessary of life— would, under any circumstances, show that such combination was to be presumed to be adverse to the public interest. It is unfortunate that our present laws should forbid all combinations, instead of sharply discriminating between those combinations which do good and those combinations which do evil. Rebates, for instance, are as often due to the pressure of big shippers as was shown in the investigation of the Standard Oil Company, and as has been shown since by the investigation of the Tobacco and Sugar Trusts, as to the initiative of big railroads. Often, railroads would like to combine for the purpose of preventing a big shipper from maintaining improper advantages at the expense of small shippers and of the general public. Such a combination instead of being forbidden by law should be favored in other words it should be permitted to railroads to make agreements provided these agreements were sanctioned by the interstate commerce commission and were published with these two conditions complied with it is impossible to see what harm such a combination could do to the public at large it is a public evil to have on the statute books A law incapable of full enforcement because both judges and juries realize that its full enforcement would destroy the business of the country. For the result is to make decent railroad men violators of the law against their will and to put a premium on the behavior of the willful wrongdoers. Such a result, in turn, tends to throw the decent man and the willful wrongdoer into close association and, in the end, to drag down the former to the latter's level. For the man who becomes a lawbreaker in one way unhappily tends to lose all respect for law and to be willing to break it in many ways. No more scathing condemnation could be visited upon a law than is contained in the words of the Interstate Commerce Commission when, in commenting upon the fact that the numerous joint traffic associations do technically violate the law, they say, the decision of the United States Supreme Court in the Trans-Missouri case and the joint traffic association case has produced no practical effect upon the railway operations of the country. Such associations, in fact, exist now as they did before these decisions, and with the same general effect. In justice to all parties, we ought probably to add that it is difficult to see how our interstate railways could be operated with due regard to the interest of the shipper and the railway without concerted action of the kind afforded through these associations, This means that the law as construed by the Supreme Court is such that the business of the country cannot be conducted without breaking it. I recommend that you give careful and early consideration to this subject, and if you find the opinion of the Interstate Commerce Commission justified, that you amend the law so as to obviate the evil disclosed. The question of taxation is difficult in any country, but it is especially difficult in ours with its federal system of government. Some taxes should on every ground be levied in a small district for use in that district thus the taxation of real estate is peculiarly one for the immediate locality in which the real estate is found again there is no more legitimate tax for any state than a tax on the franchises conferred by that state upon street railroads and similar corporations which operate wholly within the state boundaries sometimes in one and sometimes in several municipalities or other minor divisions of the state. But there are many kinds of taxes which can only be levied by the general government so as to produce the best results, because, among other reasons, the attempt to impose them in one particular state too often results merely in driving the corporation or individual affected to some other locality or other state. The national government has long derived its chief revenue from a tariff on imports and from an internal or excise tax. In addition to these, there is every reason why, when next our system of taxation is revised, the national government should impose a graduated inheritance tax and, if possible, a graduated income tax. The man of great wealth owes a peculiar obligation to the state because he derives special advantages from the mere existence of government. Not only should he recognize this obligation in the way he leads his daily life and in the way he earns and spends his money, but it should also be recognized by the way in which he pays for the protection the state gives him. On the one hand, it is desirable that he should assume his full and proper share of the burden of taxation. On the other hand, it is quite as necessary that in this kind of taxation, where the men who vote the tax pay but little of it, there should be clear recognition of the danger of inaugurating any such system, save in a spirit of entire justice and moderation. Whenever we as a people undertake to remodel our taxation system along the lines suggested, we must make it clear beyond peradventure that our aim is to distribute the burden of supporting the government more equitably than at present, that we intend to treat rich man and poor man on the basis of absolute equality, and that we regard it as equally fatal to true democracy to do or permit injustice to the one as to do or permit injustice to the other. End of section 21